Section 14 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of France. Chapter 1, Part 2 The year 1314 commenced with active preparations on the part of the king for renewing the war with Scotland. Stirling, so appropriately designated by the chroniclers of that stormy era, Striveling, was then besieged by the energetic Bruce, and it was for the relief of that important possession that the laggard heir of the conqueror of Scotland at length crossed the Tweed. He met with a decisive overthrow at Benockburn. Queen Isabella frequently resided at York and Brotherton, to be near the king during his northern campaign. In the ninth of Edward II, an information was brought before the king's council in the exchequer against Robert Le Messager for speaking irreverently or indecent words against the king. He was tried by a jury and found guilty. For some reason, however, the queen induced the archbishop of canterbury to become his bail and on that surety he was released from prison in the month of september thirteen sixteen king edward was joined by his royal consort queen isabella at york who had remained at eltham for her confinement as there is an entry soon after in the king's household book to sir eubulo de montebus for bringing the first news to the king of the happy delivery of queen of her son john of eltham one hundred pounds there is likewise a reward to the queen's messenger for announcing the first tidings of the queen's arrival at york september twenty seventh the queen sent costly presents to the new pope john of copes embroidered with large pearls bought of catherine lincoln and a cope embroidered by rosia de burford to the same pope queen isabella sent a present through don john de jarga mock her almner, of an incense boat, a ewer, and a gold buckle, set with divers pearls and precious stones, value three hundred pounds. The queen sent her valet, Goodwin Hautain, with letters to the Bishop of Norwich and the Earl of Lancaster, requesting them to come to Eltham to stand sponsors for her son John. His traveling expenses were sixteen shillings. John de Fontenoy, clerk of the queen's chapel, received one piece of turkey cloth, and one of cloth of gold, for arraying the font in which the Lord John, son of the king, was baptized at Eltham, 30th August. To Stephen Talloy, the queen's tailor, was delivered five pieces of white velvet, for the making thereof of a certain robe against the churching of the queen, after the birth of her said son. The birth of the princess Eleanor took place in 1318. The household book notes the king's gift of 333 pounds, to the Lady Isabella, Queen of England, for her churching feast, after the birth of the Lady Eleonora. There are likewise notices of money thrown over the heads of various brides and bridegrooms. As they stood at the altar, the royal pair were present at their marriages, at Havering Bower, Woodstock, and Windsor, and for money given by the orders of the king at the chapel doors. Several other entries afford amusing information respecting the manners and customs of Edward II's court. Vane Ballard, for pieces of silk and gold tissue of fustian, and of flame-colored silk, 
for the making cushions, for the charrettes of the queen and her ladies. To Robert Le Fermor, the closer, bootmaker of Fleet Street, for six pairs of boots, with tassels of silk and drops of silver gilt. Price of each pair, five shillings, bought for the king's use. Griffin, the son of Sir Griffin of Wales, was selected as one of the companions of the young Prince Edward, afterwards Edward III, at Eltham, by order of the king. When the king and queen kept Twelfth Night, their presents were magnificent. To the king of the bean, in one instance, Edward gave a silver gilt ewer, with stand and cover, and another year, a silver gilt bowl to match, as New Year's gifts. To William Salblaster, valet of the Count of Poictiers, bringing to the king bunches of new grapes at Newborough, 28th of October, 10 shillings. Queen Isabella's chaplain was entitled to have the queen's obligatory money, of the value of seven pence, redeemed each day of the year, except on the assumption of the virgin, when the queen offered gold. To Dulcia Withstaff, mother of Robert, the king's fool, coming to the king at Baldock at Christmas, ten shillings. To William de Opere, valet of the king of France, for bringing the king a box of rose-colored sugar at York, on the part of the said king, his gift, September 28th, two pounds, ten shillings. To the Lady Mary, the king's sister, a nun at Ambersbury, the price of fifteen pieces of tapestry, with divers coats of arms, bought of Richard Horsham, mercer of London, and given to the Lady Mary on her departure from court, home to Ambersbury, twenty-six pounds. To Sir Nicholas de Beck, Sir Humphrey de Luttlebury, and Sir Thomas de Latimer, for dragging the king out of bed on Easter morning, Edward paid twenty pounds. Edward II, in 1316, bestowed a considerable benefaction on Theophania de Saint-Pierre, his queen's nurse. Besides fifty pounds sterling money, he gives this person, whom he calls Lady of Bringincourt, lands in Ponthieu, where Queen Isabella was dowered. In the household books of Thomas Lancaster, Stowe found that ninety-two pounds that had been presented by that prince to his royal niece's nurses and French servants. In the twelfth year of his reign, Edward II granted to his consort Isabella the escouage, belonging to him for the army of Scotland, due from the knight's fees, which the queen held by grant for the term of her life. King Edward's disasters in the north were succeeded by the most dreadful famine ever known in England, which lasted for nearly three years. The king and queen kept their court at Westminster during the Whitsuntide Festival of 1317, and on one occasion, as they were dining in public in the great banqueting hall, a woman in a mask entered on horseback, and riding up to the royal table, delivered a letter to the king. Edward, imagining that it contained some pleasant conceit or elegant compliment, ordered it to be opened and read aloud for the amusement of his courtiers. But to his great mortification, it was a cutting satire on his unkingly propensities, setting forth in no measured terms all the calamities which his misgovernment had brought upon England. The woman was immediately taken into custody, and confessed that she had been employed by a certain knight. The knight boldly acknowledged what he had done, and said, that supposing that the king would read the letter in private, he took that method of apprising him of the complaints of his subjects. 
The following year, Robert Bruce laid siege to Berwick. Queen Isabella accompanied her lord into the north, and while he advanced to Berwick, she, with her young family, took up her abode at Brotherton, the former residence of her late aunt, Queen Margaret. This was a place of apparent security, as it was nearly a hundred miles from the scene of war. Yet she was exposed to a very great peril while residing there in the year 1319, during the absence of the king, in consequence of a daring attempt of Earl Douglas to surprise her in her retreat and carry her off into Scotland. The monk of Malmesbury gives the following account of this adventure. Douglas marched into England at the head of 10,000 men with great secrecy, and nearly arrived at the village where Queen Isabella and her children resided, when one of his scouts fell into the hands of the Archbishop of York, the king's counselor, who threatened him with tortures. The man promised, if they would spare him, to confess the great danger their queen was in. The ministers laughed his intelligence to scorn, till he staked his life that if they sent scouts in the direction he pointed out, they would find Douglas and his host within a few hours' march of the queen's retreat. Alarmed by the proofs given by the man, they collected all their retinue, and all the men-at-arms York could furnish, and marched on a sudden to the queen's residence, with the tidings of her great danger. They brought her off directly to York, and afterwards, for the greater security, she was taken to Nottingham. It was in 1321 that the storm gathered among the Lord Marchers, which led to the Baron's War, and brought Isabella and Roger Mortimer into acquaintance with each other. We now come to that eventful period when Isabella exchanged the lovely character of a peacemaker for that of a vindictive political agitator, and finally branded her once-honored name with the foul stains of adultery, treason, and murder. The circumstances which in the first instance led to this fearful climax of guilt were, as far as concerned Isabella, accidental. On the 13th of October, 1321, the Queen set out on a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Thomas of Becket, at Canterbury, and proposing to pass the night at her own castle of Leeds, of which Bartholomew Battlesmare, one of the associated barons, was castellan, she sent her marshal and purveyors before her to announce her intention, and to order proper arrangements to be made for her reception. Battlesmare was absent at that time, and being deeply involved in the treasonable designs of the Earl of Lancaster, had charged his lady to maintain the castle, though it was a royal demesnay, being one of the dower palaces of the queens of England. Lady Battlesmare, feeling some mistrust at the real object of Isabella in demanding admittance for herself and train, replied with great insolence to the royal messengers, that the queen might seek some other lodging, for she would not admit any one into the castle without an order from her lord. While the dispute was proceeding between the Lady Battlesmare and the purveyors, the queen and her train arrived at the castle gates, and were received with a volley of arrows, which slew six of the royal escort, and compelled the queen to retreat with precipitation, and to seek other shelter for the night. The queen complained bitterly to the king of the affront she had received, and entreated him to avenge the murder of her servants, and the insolence of the Lady Battlesmare, in presuming to exclude her from her own castle. Battlesmare had the folly to write the most insulting letter to the queen, in reply to the complaints that had been addressed to him of his wife's conduct, expressing his entire approval of what she had done. 
This conduct was aggravated by the fact that Battlesmere had very lately been one of the principal officers of the palace, and held the high station of steward of the royal household, before Edward gave him the appointment of Castellan of Leeds. The whole transaction implies some previous personal quarrel with the queen. Hitherto, the queen had been on the most amicable terms with the barons, but as neither Lancaster, nor any of the associates, thought proper to express any reprobation of the disrespect with which she had been treated by their confederate, she determined to be revenged on all, and accordingly represented to the king that if he raised an army for the purpose of besieging Leeds Castle, he would eventually be enabled to use it for the extension of his kingly power. The king would willingly have temporized, but the haughty spirit of Isabella would not permit him to delay becoming the minister of her vengeance. Edward published his manifesto, setting forth the contempt with which his beloved consort, Isabella, Queen of England, had been treated by the family of Bartholomew Battlesmere, who had insolently opposed her in her desire of entering Leeds Castle, and that the said Bartholomew Battlesmere had by his letters approved of this misconduct of his family, in thus obstructing and contumeliciously treating the queen, for which cause a general muster of all persons between the ages of sixteen and sixty was called to attend the king on an expedition against Leeds Castle. A large force, of which the Londoners formed a considerable portion, was quickly levied, for the queen was the darling of the nation, and all were eager to avenge even the shadow of a wrong that was offered to her. The Lady Battlesmare, who was undoubtedly a notable virago, treated the royal threats with contempt, and, with her seneschal, Walter Culpepper, defied both the king and his army, when they appeared beneath the walls of Leeds Castle, which was well stored with provisions, and she confidently relied on receiving prompt relief from the associate barons. In this, however, she was disappointed, for the Earl of Lancaster had no intention to come to a rupture with the queen, his niece. The castle of Leeds was in consequence compelled to surrender at discretion on the last day of October. Immediate vengeance was taken by the king for the assault on the queen and her servants, on the seneschal, Walter Culpepper, who, with eleven of the garrison, were hanged before the castle gates. Lady Battlesmere was committed to the Tower of London as a state prisoner, and was threatened with the same fate that had been inflicted on her agents. But it does not appear that she suffered any worse punishment than a long and rigorous imprisonment. With all their faults, there is no instance of any monarch of the Plantagenet line putting a lady to death for high treason. Flushed with his success at Leeds, King Edward recalled his banished favorites, the two dispensers, whose counsels quite accorded with the previous persuasions of the queen, to use the military force which he had levied for the reduction of the Leeds castle, for the purpose of repressing the power of the associate barons. Isabella was so deeply offended with the barons, as the allies of the Battlesmares, that she not only refused to employ her influence in composing the differences between them and the king, but did everything in her power to influence the mind of her lord against them. Lancaster was taken at the Battle of Borough Bridge, where the sovereign fought in person against the associate barons, March 16, 1322. The Earl, and ninety-five of his adherents, were conducted as prisoners to Pontefract Castle, where the King sat in judgment upon him, with a small jury of peers, 
by whom he was sentenced to lose his head. The queen was not aware of her uncle's sentence till after his execution, which took place only a few hours after his doom was pronounced. Probably this indecent haste was used to prevent the possibility of the queen's intercession being used in behalf of her kinsmen. While King Edward was battling the rebellious barons, the queen, for greater security, took up her abode in the tower. In this royal fortress, she gave birth to her youngest child, the Lady Joanna, who from that circumstance was called Joanna de la Tour. Some time before the birth of the Princess Joanna, the two Mortimers, uncle and nephew, having been taken in arms against the king, were brought to the tower as state prisoners, under sentence of death and confiscation of their great estates. Roger Mortimer, Lord of Chirk, the uncle, died of famine, through the neglect or cruelty of his jailers, in failing to supply him with the necessaries of life, it has been said, soon after his capture. Roger Mortimer, the nephew, was in the pride and vigor of manhood, and possessed of strength of constitution and energy of mind, to struggle with any hardship to which he might be exposed. The manner in which he contrived, while under sentence of death in one of the prison lodgings of the Tower of London, to create so powerful an interest in the heart of the beautiful consort of his offended sovereign, is not related by any of the chroniclers of that reign. It is possible, however, that Isabella's disposition for intermeddling in political matters might have emboldened this handsome and audacious rebel to obtain personal interviews with her, under the color of being willing to communicate to her the secrets of his party. He was the husband of a French lady, Jane de Joinville, the heiress of Sir Peter Joinville, and was in all probability only too well acquainted with the language that was most pleasing to the ear of the queen, and the manners and refinements of her native land, which in civilization was greatly in advance of the bellicose realm of England. Be this as it may, Mortimer was reprieved through the good offices of some powerful intercessor, and the king commuted his sentence of death into perpetual imprisonment in the tower. This occasioned some astonishment, when it was remembered that Mortimer was the first who had commenced the civil war, by his fierce attack on the lands of Hugh Dispenser, who was his sworn foe, and who at this very time had regained more than his former sway in the council of King Edward. But at that time, the influence of the queen was paramount to any other, and it was probably on this account that the deadly feud commenced between her and the two dispensers, which ended so fatally for both. About this period, we observe the following precept, addressed by King Edward to his treasurer and the barons of the exchequer, for the supply of his own and his queen's wardrobe. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., etc. We command that ye provide sixteen pieces of cloth, for the apparelling of ourselves and our dear companion, also furs, against the next feast of Christmas, and thirteen pieces of cloth for corsets, for our said companion and her damsels, with naping linen, and other things of which we stand in need, against the said feast, requiring you to assign William Cassons, the clerk of our wardrobe, one hundred and fifteen pounds, in such manner as may obtain prompt payment of the same for this purpose given at Langley, the tenth day of December, and of our reign, the fifteenth. The king and Isabella spent their Christmas together. It is probable that she availed herself of that opportunity 
of obtaining not only so unconscionable an allowance of cloth for her corsets, but a reprieve from death for Mortimer. In the succeeding year, 1323, we find the tameless border chief, from his London in the tower, organizing a plan for the seizure, not only of the royal fortress, but Windsor and Wallingford. Again was Mortimer condemned to suffer death for high treason, but through the agency of Adam Orleton and Beck, Bishop of Durham, he obtained a respite. On the 1st of August, the same year, Gerard Alspey, the valet of Seagrave, the constable of the tower, who was supposed to be in cooperation with him, gave the men-at-arms a soporific potion in their drink provided by the queen, and while the guards were asleep, Mortimer passed through a hole he had worked in his own prison into the kitchen of the royal residence, ascended the chimney, got on the roof of the palace, and from thence to the Thames side by a ladder of ropes. Seagrave's valet then took a sculler and rode him over to the opposite bank of the river, where they found a party of seven horsemen pertaining to Mortimer waiting to receive him. With this guard he made his way to the coast of Hampshire. From thence, pretending to sail to the Isle of Wight, the boat in reality conveyed the fugitives on board a large ship, provided by Ralph Button, a London merchant, which was anchored off the Needles. This ship landed them safely at Normandy, and from thence Mortimer got to Paris. Edward was in Lancaster when he heard of the escape of Mortimer. He roused all England with a hue and cry after him, but does not seem to have had the least idea of his destination, as he sought him chiefly in the Mortimer's hereditary demesnes, the marches of Wales. Directly Mortimer was in safety, the queen commenced her deep-laid schemes for the ruin of his powerful enemies, the dispensers, whom she taught the people to regard as the cause of the sanguinary executions of Lancaster and his adherents. Though her own impatient desire of avenging the affronts she had received from Lady Battlesmere had been the means of exasperating the sovereign against that party, now she protested against all the punishments that had been inflicted, and was the first who pretended to regard Lancaster as a martyr and a saint. The dispensers had succeeded in obtaining the same sort of ascendancy over the mind of the king that had once been enjoyed by Gaveston, and the whole authority of his feeble despotism was committed to their administration. Their first act was to curtail the revenues of the queen. This imprudent step afforded Isabella a plausible excuse for declaring open hostilities against them. No one had ever offended her without paying a deadly penalty for their rashness. She perceived that she had lost her influence with her royal husband during his absence in the civil war in the north, and though it is evident that an illicit passion on her part had preceded the alienation of the king's regard for her, she did not complain the less loudly of her wrongs on that account. Neither did she scruple to brand the dispensers, with all the accusations she had formerly hurled at Gaveston, charging them with having deprived her of the love of her royal husband. There was a fierce struggle for supremacy between her and the dispensers, during the year 1324, which ended in the discharge of all her French servants, and the substitution of an inadequate pension for her, instead of the royal demesnes, which had been settled on her by the king. Isabella wrote her indignant complaints of this treatment to her brother, Charles Lebel, who had just succeeded to the throne of France, declaring 
that she was held in no higher consideration than a servant in the palace of the king, her husband, whom she styled a gripple miser, a character which the thoughtless and prodigal Edward was very far from meriting. The king of France, exasperated by his sister's representations of her wrongs, made an attack on Guienne, which afforded an excuse to the dispensers, for advising King Edward to deprive the queen of her last possession in England, the earldom of Cornwall. The king resumed this grant in a peculiarly disobliging manner, giving the queen to understand that he did not consider it safe to allow any portion of his territories to remain in her hand, as she maintained a secret correspondence with the enemies of the state. The feuds between the royal pair proceeded to such a height, that Isabella denied her company to her lord, and he refused to come where she was. The queen passionately charged this estrangement on the dispensers, and reiterated her complaints to her brother. King Charles testified his indignant sense of his sister's treatment, by declaring his intention of seizing all the provinces held by King Edward of the French crown, he having repeatedly summoned him in vain to perform the accustomed homage for them. Edward was not prepared to engage in war for their defense, and neither he nor his ministers liked the alternative of a personal visit to the court of the incensed brother of Queen Isabella, after the indignities that had been offered to her. In this dilemma, Isabella herself obligingly volunteered to act as mediatrix between the two monarchs, provided she might be permitted to go to Paris to negotiate a pacification. Edward, who had so often been extricated from his political difficulties by the diplomatic talents of his fair consort, was only too happy to avail himself of her disposal. It has been asserted by many historians that Queen Isabella privately withdrew to France with her son, the Prince of Wales, to claim the protection of her brother, Charles Lebel, against the king, her husband, and his ministers, the dispensers. But a careful reference to those authorities, which may be called the fountainheads of history, the record rolls of that reign, will satisfactorily prove that she was sent as an accredited envoy from the deluded Edward to negotiate this treaty with her royal brother. Frosart, who purposely veils the blackest traits of Isabella's character, her profound hypocrisy and treachery, represents her as flying from the barbarous persecutions of her husband and the dispensers, like some distressed queen of romance, and engaging, by her beauty and eloquence, all the chivalric spirits of France and Hainault, to arm the redress of her wrongs. He has succeeded in giving just such a color to her proceedings as would be least offensive to her son Edward III, with whom, for obvious reasons, the whole business must have been a peculiarly sore subject. The propriety of the queen undertaking the mission to the court of France was debated in the first council, and afterwards in the parliament, which met January 21st, 1325, to consider the affairs of Guienne, when it was agreed that any expedition was better than pursuing the war. A hollow reconciliation was effected between Isabella and the dispensers, who were delighted at the prospect of her departure from England, and the royal pair parted, apparently on terms of the most affectionate confidence, and goodwill. Isabella sailed for France in the beginning of May, attended only by the Lord John Cromwell and four knights. She landed at Calais, and proceeded to Paris, 
where the first fruit of her mediation was a truce between her brother and the king, her husband. She then negotiated an amicable treaty, proposing the surrender of Guienne, already forfeited by the neglect of the feudal homage to the king of France, which was to be restored at her personal instances, by her brother, to the king of England, on condition of his performing the accustomed homage, and remunerating the king of France, for the expense of the war. This was to take place at a friendly interview, between the two monarchs at Beauvais. The dispensers, anticipating with alarm, the great probability of the queen, regaining her wonted ascendancy over the mind of her royal husband, dissuaded him from crossing to the shores of France, even when his preparations for the voyage were completed. Isabella, who was well informed of these demurs, and perfectly understood the vacillating character of her husband, proposed to him that he should invest their son, the Prince of Wales, with the Duchy of Guienne and the Earldom of Ponthieu, and sent him as his substitute, to perform the homage for those countries to the king, her brother, King Charles, having signified his assent to such an arrangement, in compliance with her solicitations. Edward, far from suspecting the guileful intentions of his consort, eagerly complied with this proposal, and the dispensers, not being possessed of sufficient penetration to understand the motives which prompted the queen to get the heir of England into her own power, fell into the snare. On the 12th of September, 1325, Prince Edward, attended by the bishops of Oxford, Exeter, and a splendid train of nobles and knights, sailed from Dover, and, landing at Boulogne, was joined by the queen his mother on the 14th, who accompanied him to Paris, where his first interview with the king, his uncle, took place in her presence, and he performed the act of feudal homage on the 21st, at the Bois de Vincennes. End of section 14